0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I did not double check, but I'm pretty sure it's close to page 954 if you happen to be using this here Bible. And these Bibles are available. Toward the back there, there's a rack I encourage you to have a Bible open this morning as we go to God's Word and as we seek to hear from Him today. Just pause for a moment and ask God to bless the preaching and the hearing of His Word today as we're gathered God, we are gathered as your people this morning because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we sang about. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead, reigning on high, filling his church with his spirit, sending us out to do the glorious kingdom work that you've called us to. And we pause for a moment to recognize that it is a holy moment to sing in worship, and it is a holy moment to worship through your Word. And so, God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to hear what you are saying through the Word this morning. Pray that you would cause us to behold Jesus, the wonderful mystery, our Lord and Savior. The one who has changed us, who has transformed us, who has washed us, who has sanctified us, who has justified us. Lord, show us Jesus this morning, we pray, in his name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Tally is one confused puppy. Literally. Tally is a husky who acts like a cat. And I read about this on the internet this past week, which is the source of all true and reliable information. So I'm sure it's accurate. But Tally's owner acquired Tally from someone else having, having no idea that this dog thought it, and acted like it was a cat. Because Tally would not do dog things, but do cat things. And even the way Tally would sit on the floor and, and curl up her paws looked more like a cat. And she she just liked to stare at people and sort of size them up quietly, as cats do. And it's kind of like to frisk around and play in boxes like cats do. And her owner noticed she, she never barked, and she was actually afraid of the other dogs. And then she discovered from Tally's previous owner that the previous owner had, had raised Tally in a house exclusively of cats. And so even though now Tally belonged as a dog to a dog owner, she was suffering from some canine identity confusion and was continuing to act as though she was still under the authority of her former master. Now, identity crises are um, at least as common in the human world as they are in the canine world. In fact, you could say of the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth because they are experiencing an identity crisis, which is why at the very beginning of the book, you remember, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 3, and Paul Straight on, affirms their identity. This is who you are, church at Corinth. You are the church of God. You are those who have been sanctified and set apart in Jesus. You are, you are the saints. You are the holy ones in the land. But like Tally, the Corinthian church kept forgetting who they truly were, their true identity, and they kept kept acting as if they were still under the authority of their old master, the, the prince of the power of the air, our adversary. And so Paul is writing this letter in large part to call them back to their new and their true identity in Jesus Christ. And we need to hear that as well, because... As followers of Jesus Christ, we can fall into some identity issues as well, sliding back into the the patterns of our old pre-Jesus way of life. And so this word that came to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, the Spirit brings to us this morning, calling us who are in Christ to our true identity and to living out that true and new and transformed identity that we have through Christ. And so let's look at God's Word this morning from chapter 6. Let me remind you, first of all, where we are in the flow of the book. We've entered the second major section in chapters 5 and 6. And in this section, Paul is addressing head-on with great apostolic authority and also with the great care and compassion of the spiritual father of the Corinthians. He's addressing three issues. Three major problems in the church. And we we looked at one of them two weeks ago in terms of a man who was involved in some very ongoing serious sexual sin that needed to be dealt with by the church community. And today we're looking at the second issue of those three issues. So let's look at verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is God's holy word. Paul writes... When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers." To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God friends this is God's holy word and we thank him for it this is how we're going to proceed through the passage this morning and in 3 movements, and then I want to draw out three implications. We're going to begin with the specific issue that Paul is addressing among the Corinthian church, and then move from the specifics to a general principle for the body of Christ, for God's people, and then finally, uh, to the greater kingdom reality. So so the sort of scope is getting wider and greater as we move on from the specific issue he's addressing, to a general principle for God's people, to, to a massive kingdom reality. So let's look at the specific issue. And that that issue, as we just read, has to do with Christians taking one another to court, uh, bringing cases to court against one another in the church. And these are probably uh, cases, there's probably one specific case that he's talking about here because he talks about a brother going to court against a brother. But he also mentions cases, like this is something that's going on in, in more than one instance among the church. And I think we should note, uh, just as an aside, these are probably not criminal type of cases where someone is assaulting someone else or something like that, uh, where the law does need to be brought in for, for justice and someone's protection, but probably talking about financial matters or property disputes. He talks about being defrauded here, and Paul is concerned that brother in Christ is taking another brother in Christ to court. He's really worked up. He says, how dare you? How dare you? In fact, uh, the first word in the sentence uh, in in chapter 1 in the original is dare. He begins by saying, how dare you? Dare you take one another to court? Why exactly is Paul so outraged? I mean, is it because he's shocked that... Believer is sinning against believer? Well, as we observed two weeks ago when Paul was dealing with a man caught in continual incestuous sin in the church, uh, there's very little that shocks Paul in terms of sin within the church. He's not, he's not surprised that believers do fall into sin. So he's, he's not shocked that, that this is going on, uh, that there is a sin going on that is in the church. Well, does he have an issue with believers using uh, the, the, the legal system the secular legal system of the Roman Empire should they should they uh, stay away from that and not dirty their hands that way? well, uh, apparently not. Uh, Paul took full advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen, especially if you read the narrative of the book of acts he was, he was in the Courts of law often making his case before uh, the Roman secular rulers. He exercised his privilege uh, time and again as, as a Roman citizen to, to receive protection. And as uh, Jeff Johnson mentioned, Paul writes in Romans 13 that, that all authority is established by God. Whether those authorities confess the name of Christ or not, uh, Paul writes to the Romans, all authorities that are in place are there because God has put them there, and as such, they are there for the good of believers and for all people. So so that doesn't seem to be the issue. No, the issue is at the end of verse 1. Look at it again. He writes, when you have a grievance, a case, an issue with one another, does one of you dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints, instead of God's holy people. That is the issue. The problem is that they're they're forgetting who they are as God's covenant community. You are God's holy people. You are the saints. And Paul says, the saints, God's people, will one day judge the world. What an awesome reality. Paul is referring back to to what is written in uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 22, where it says that "That the ancient of days, God Almighty, came. This is a prophetic vision. And judgment was given to God's people, the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And Paul writes, do you not know? And he's not asking a question. He's making a statement. In other words, he's saying, you guys ought to know this. In fact, I know you guys know this, because I was there for a year and a half teaching you the Scriptures, teaching you from Daniel. You, you know this. You're not applying it. Now, Paul gets even more in their face with, it, with an argument from the, from the greater uh, to the lesser in verse 3. He says, one day, we're actually going to judge angels. Now, on the hierarchy of God's created beings, human beings are, are up there. We're above the plant and animal world, but the angels are even above us. And Paul says, you're going to judge angels one day. Couldn't you get a few of you together and be able to make a ruling on things that are, that are more trivial, the, the everyday stuff of life? It's a, a neat uh, original Greek word, Behind that, uh, bi- biotica or biotica. Maybe you hear the word bio or life in that. The everyday stuff of life. You can't, can't you get believers together and make a judgment on the everyday? You're, you're going to judge angels one day. Can't you ju- make judgments within the church when there are disputes among a brother or a sister? These are the trivial things of everyday life, Paul says. This is the stuff that Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 21 not to allow their hearts to be be weighed down upon. This is temporary stuff. You guys need to be able to get it together in this realm. And then Paul really takes a whack at them in verse 5. Notice in verse 5 he brings up wisdom. Oh yes, they love wisdom. Wisdom in Corinth, don't they? They're big on wisdom. Paul says, great. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among two Christians? You guys are really into wisdom? Okay, (laughs) show me the money. Show me that you can take wisdom and apply it in the realm of God's people by settling a dispute among two believers. Paul had said back in chapter 14 that he was writing to them and he was correcting them, not in order to shame them. Well, not anymore. (laughs) Now he says, I say this to your shame. You guys actually ought to be ashamed that this is going on in the church. And again, why is it so shameful? Well, taking disputes, Paul says, among Christians and subjecting them to the judgment of those outside the church to to unbelievers is a terrible witness for the church. And so the specific issue, the specific issue here is that Christians, the church, is going to secular authorities. Those in the world, they're not not bad to go to, to use those authorities, but you're settling internal disputes and placing that before those outside the church. Why is that a big deal? Here Paul gets to the general principle. Why is this a big deal? In verse 7, Paul begins to to drill down to the heart issues involved and reveals that lawsuits among believers uh, reveal the, the bad fruit of the root problem, which has to do with selfish desires and a lack of love for one another as well as a lack of love for the world. Paul says the fact that there are lawsuits at all between Christians is already a loss for you. Look at verse 7 again. The first word in the original in verse 7 is the word already. Paul wants them to know already. Already this is a defeat for you. Already this is a loss. And, and there's, the word there means total loss, complete defeat. Defeat. You guys haven't even gotten out of the locker room and the game is already lost. You haven't even made your opening arguments and you've already lost the case in God's court. In the eternally important realm of relationships within the covenant community, you've already lost. Big time. Notice that the The apostle is talking here about a specific case among just two individuals in the church. But what he's writing is to the whole, the church body as a whole. In other words, there's a responsibility that that all of us have for one another. And there's a responsibility that we have as the body corporate for what goes on individually with our brothers and sisters. We all have a responsibility for the fellowship or lack thereof in God's covenant community. In other words, to answer Cain way back in Genesis, you are your brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper. Paul's going to address that in a more drawn-out and full way in chapter 12 when he he gives this analogy of the human body and says, okay, we're not all the same. We're like different parts of the body, but we are one body. And to bring that analogy forward for, for the thumb to be taking the pinky toe to court, that's a problem. That's not a healthy body. You have a responsibility not only to the body of Christ, but also to the unbelieving world around you, to display to them an accurate picture of what it, likes to, what it looks like to be God's new people in Christ. Christians, you are called to live as God's holy people, Paul writes, even if it costs you. Notice what he says to, to the one who has the complaint the plaintiff here the one who has who has filed suit against his brother in, in verse 7 it says listen why not suffer loss why not lose a few bucks why not lose a lot of money why not be defrauded see we all know that money isn't everything right We all know that that relationships are more important than material possessions. Until someone starts messing with our stuff. Until someone starts wanting to take our money and not paying it back. God's word to us this morning says, Are not the relationships within the body and our witness to the world more important than that? Even if you can't get it together and settle things, wouldn't it be better to suffer loss than to communicate to the world an inaccurate picture of who Jesus is and who his new people are? And so the general principle for the church is that the reputation of Christ's church among the world and our relationships with one another within the Christian community are more important than our financial gain and our financial loss. That's the general principle. The family of God ought to be able, first of all, we ought to be able to settle our disputes among one another because we care more about the relationships than we do about stuff. And we care more about what the world is seeing as they watch us and they are watching us. We care more about that than we do about our individual rights. So Paul writes, if you feel you've been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ, it's better to suffer loss than to compromise the church's witness to the world. And, he says, if you are the one accused of wronging a brother or sister or defrauding them, then you had better do some heavy-duty soul-searching. Perhaps you're self-deceived. Perhaps you think you're a Christian— But the pattern of your life communicates something different. And here we turn to the kingdom reality. And as stern a warning as the scripture offers here and in other places to make your calling and election sure, Uh, to look at your own heart and reflect on it. Paul begins that warning in uh, verse 8 the fact that that it looks like someone at least is accused of defrauding another brother in Christ causes him to point to a a bigger reality, a bigger kingdom truth. Listen, he says, you need to realize that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he, he brings full force to that by listing out several sinful patterns. Not just individual sins, but he's talking about the practice of those who are yet on the outside. He he refers to them as unrighteous. They are not yet justified in Christ. This is very similar to his warning earlier in chapter 5, his warning to the church about the man caught and involved in incest. That there is a a brother who is naming the name of Christ, but he's not living like a Christian. So he's on on very, very shaky ground. And Paul says the same thing here. People who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're, they're, They're revealing their true identity. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, when Jesus returns to fully consummate and establish his kingdom in all its perfection. There will not be a place for them. They will be cast outside the kingdom where there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth and there is eternal destruction. Paul was talking about judgments in this life. That's going to be the eternal judgment and the one that really matters. Since folks who who live this way, they they might attend church, Uh, they they may have made a profession of faith, but their life is characterized by unrighteous practices of of the culture at large. They are, in fact, still outside the kingdom. And I think we need to, to be reminded of these lifestyles that Paul points to here that will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, those who are sexually immoral, those who who practice the sexual ethics of the world, those who are idolaters, uh, those whose hearts worship and are drawn to something other than the living God, living for something other than their creator, those who are adulterers, who, who do not respect marriage. In Paul's day, uh, adultery was, was the common practice, especially uh, for men. They weren't expected to be faithful in marriage. Paul says, if that is your lifestyle, you are indicating that you are yet outside the kingdom. And Paul says, Included in, in the list of, of sexual immorality is the practice of homosexuality. I think we need to, to pause for a moment and recognize that. In our culture that is continually calling us on us to look at this particular sin issue and normalize it, we need to understand that God's word is absolutely clear. That, that living, and I, but what I appreciate about this is it says practicing homosexuality, living this kind of lifestyle. It doesn't say that if a person is ever tempted toward this, it doesn't say that, that if a person struggles with same-sex attraction that they are outside the kingdom. It says that if a person practices this lifestyle, practices in these kinds of engagements, But what I also appreciate about God's word here is that this sin is not singled out as different from other sexual sins or from greed or from idolatry or from theft. So Paul continues to talk about these kinds of practices, these kinds of lifestyles, these kinds of life trajectories that will keep people out of the kingdom. To be a thief, to, to, to want more and to take, think that you may take what is not yours. Uh, to be greedy, to be covetous, to be always wanting more. To be a drunkard, someone who can't handle substance and chooses not to handle substance, but simply take it in for their own pleasure. Revilers, those who, those who slander with their words, swindlers, those who cheat people out of things, that are always looking for an angle. Paul says all of these kinds of life trajectories are yet outside of God's kingdom. And his warning is, if this is the path of your life, then don't be deceived. Friends, this is as sobering a wake-up call and warning as there is in Scripture. It is meant to arrest, it was meant to arrest the Corinthians' attention. It is meant to arrest our attention and to wake us up to the reality and to wake us up, most of all, to our true identity. Because the next words that Paul says after listing out these these anti-God world kinds of lifestyles These next words are so filled and infused with grace. And such were some of you. That little word, were, is bursting with grace. It is bursting with gospel. And such were some of you. He's saying, folks, people in this congregation, we were these things, were. That was our past identity. But something happened. But, another great gospel word exploding with grace. Something has happened. Something has changed. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That beautiful word were indicates that somebody else did these things to you and for you. Friends, this is the gospel. This is is what God has done in saving us through Jesus. These three aspects of our salvation, not necessarily uh, meant to be taken in any sequence, but all describing one thing what Jesus has done for us. In trusting, when you trusted Jesus, he washed you clean. We were the dirty, and he cleansed us. He washed away the sin stains. All the sin stains from all the practices that Paul just listed out there, washed clean. And he sanctified his people. He he sets us apart. He calls us to holy living. We, We were profane. We were common. And he called us, and he set us apart to be holy, to be his holy people, And he justified us. He justified us. He made us right with God. He gave us his righteousness. On the cross, he took on our sin. And he bore the full wrath of God for it. And he gives us his righteousness. So that when God looks at his children who are trusting in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see sin-stained people. He sees those for whom there is now no condemnation in Christ, fully justified before their creator now and forever. Friends, God's grace is greater than all our sin. And God did this in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Jesus did all these things. Remember when you read the the name of God or the name of Jesus in Scripture, it's not just talking about speaking a word or speaking a name. It's talking about the person and the character that is described there. All of these things are through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who bore our wrath, the one who justifies us, the one who was raised to new life for our salvation. And they were done by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who, who, who regenerated us, who, who gave us new life to even trust in Jesus in the first place. And it is the Spirit who is, is generating godly affections in our lives. And notice that it, there's, it's no coincidence here that the Trinity is representative. God did these things, the Father, in the name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, washed, sanctified, justified. Believer, this is your true identity. You see, the gospel defines who we are because it tells us, as we've already said, whose we are. That's that's our new identity. Our new name is washed, sanctified, justified. And if that is who you are in Christ then your life ought to reflect that newness, that new identity in Christ, that you have a new Lord, that you have a new master. And so the kingdom reality that that, that is a banner over this whole passage is that transformed, lives transformed by the gospel ought to be seen in the life of God's new people. The transforming effect of the gospel ought to be seen in the lives of God's new people. Those who have been changed by God's grace are called to reflect God's kingdom to the world. Kingdom people must operate by kingdom values and kingdom priorities. Or as we said it in the very first verses of 1 Corinthians, who we are is a result of whose we are. To live otherwise is to suffer an identity crisis transforming effect of the gospel ought to be seen in the lives of God's new people. And that has implications. And I I just want to briefly talk about three implications how the gospel transforms our relationships. First of all, our relationship with God. The gospel transforms our relationship with God positionally because we're no longer God's enemies. Uh, We were God's enemies, not just passively, but actively. The sins listed in this passage are our active attempts for for people to create their own reality and and to be their own masters. And the result is, is alienation, separation from our Creator. But Jesus came that we might be reconciled to our Creator, He came to make God's enemies his friends, his children. And so positionally, we are righteous in Christ. There is now no condemnation. We are washed clean, adopted into his family, and dearly loved. That's who we are positionally. That's how God sees us. Experientially, how we experience life from day to day, we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's the process of sanctification. And it is a process. We're not there yet. We are becoming more and more who we already are. It's sort of like uh, you ever watch a movie or, or read a story in history where some young boy who is a prince is suddenly made king, and he's only six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And so positionally, he's a king. But experientially, he's not really able to rule until he's grown and matured. That's who we are in Christ. Positionally, we are in Christ. We are holy. We are righteous. In our experience, we are growing into greater and greater holiness. That's the process of sanctification. I think this passage has wonderful implications for how we pursue the Christian life, for how we pursue obedience. how we pursue holiness. That we not pursue it as debtors, as if we owe God something. I mean, do we owe God anything? Do we owe God anything? Yeah. What do we owe God? We owe God everything. I mean, we literally owe God everything. And yet to obey God as if we were paying Him back that's a guilt-motivated kind of obedience. And it's an affront to God's grace, as if we could pay him back. We also are, called, are not called to obey God or to pursue sanctification in a what I like to call a, a Nike sort of format or fashion. Just do it. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and engage your willpower and be obedient. You know, there are lots of religions in the world where people can be very obedient and very moral. I have very moral Mormon friends whose morality sometimes, maybe many times, outshines my own. Muslims can discipline themselves to pray seven times a day. They can discipline themselves to abstain from alcohol. All kinds of religions can discipline themselves. That's sheer willpower. No, the motivation that we see for obedience in this passage is 100% gospel. You were that. You have been sanctified. You have a new identity in Christ. There's no condemnation for you, so now live that out. In the joy of reveling in the gospel, all that God has done for you, the gospel tells us that That's the sin that you keep falling into has already fully been paid by Jesus, by his precious blood. His blood has washed you clean. And that is how your heavenly father sees you. So now, Christian, embrace holiness. He has given you his spirit so that you have the power not to sin. So embrace the joy of living out the values of your Father's kingdom. Gospel-motivated obedience. Secondly, the gospel motivation here has implications for our relationships with one another. The spiritual growth of your brother or your sister in Christ, my brother and sister in Christ, needs to become a ruling priority in our relationships with one another. Nothing is more important than seeing my brother or my sister grow closer to Jesus, which means that when we have conflicts and disagreements with one another, our relationships are more important than our rights, more important than winning the argument. In his very helpful book, which I noticed there are three copies of back there, uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, he gives an analogy of how we often view conflict. He talks about a hike he was on with three friends. And they were in a wooded and mountainous area and they had to cross a stream that had become a raging river with the spring thaw. And as, as each of them and they together looked at the challenge in front of them, uh, they each viewed the stream in a different way. One saw it as a dangerous obstacle, and and they were afraid to even attempt to cross. Another saw the stream as a means to show how tough he was, and he was willing to take risks to conquer and to win. But a couple of the friends saw the stream as an interesting challenge, and so they were willing to work together and to figure out a way to get across this obstacle safely and for everyone's well-being. Sandy writes, I've found that people look at conflict in much the same way that my friends and I viewed that stream. To some, conflict is a, ha- a hazard that threatens to sweep them off their feet and leave them bruised and hurting. To others, it is an obstacle that they should conquer quickly and firmly. But a few people have learned that conflict is an opportunity to solve common problems in a way that honors God. And benefits those who are involved. Friends, that's a kingdom perspective. That's the perspective of living already as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. We're not there yet. But through Jesus, we're embracing the values of his new kingdom and we're beginning to live that out as God's new people. Finally, there are implications here for our relationship with the world. First of all, we have a responsibility toward the people of this world. A responsibility to represent King Jesus well in opportunities like serving the police force. We have a responsibility to to, to be an attractive alternative for, quite frankly, the the dog-eat-dog social Darwinism of our world. The church should look very different than what people experience every day. We have a responsibility to live as people fully engaged in this world, but whose hope is in the world to come, a new heaven and a new earth that our King will soon establish. We also have an opportunity with the, in, the, in the everyday matters of the world. This passage helps us to discern what is trivial not weighty, light, and what truly matters, what is heavy, what will last, what is glorious. Whether I get everything that I think is coming to me is trivial. Whether I get what I believe I deserve is trivial. How I conduct myself with regard to the everyday matters of life, the everyday stuff of life, that seems trivial, the stuff is trivial, but how I conduct myself and how we conduct ourselves as believers, that really matters. That really is weighty. That really does have the potential to be glorious. You see, for the believer, for the the kingdom person, everything that we do and everywhere that we go, every person with whom we interact, they come into contact with Jesus' kingdom through us, I think that's what Jeff was telling us a few moments ago. And so the everyday matters and business of this world can have eternal kingdom ramifications. And friends, that gives all of life, all, of, all the moments of our lives that seem inconsequential, that gives them great meaning and significance. And in a very real sense, for the Christian, nothing is secular. And everything has the potential to be sacred because we are filled with God's Holy Spirit and we bring the presence of Christ into every aspect of our life and everywhere we go. This reality has the power to transform all of life because the transforming effect of the gospel ought to be seen in in all of life, in every little portion of our life. We have these momentary times of identity crisis when when we begin to to live as if we're still under the old master. And God's word to us this morning, today, is to come back to the truth of the gospel. Come back to that, that gospel infused word, were. That's who you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified. That is your true and new identity in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is unsure about their identity in Christ. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to the marvelous grace of their loving Lord Jesus Christ. And that they would know right now that you are completely able to wash them clean of the sin that stains their life. And you are completely able to set them apart as one of your holy children. And because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, you are completely able to justify them, that they might be righteous in your sight. God, I pray that you would grant repentance. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know Jesus, is unsure of their identity in Him, that they would turn from their sin. And look to Jesus in in faith, confessing their sin, looking to his death as the full payment for their sin. And Lord, for all who have, by your grace, come to you in faith, for whom you have done the work, the miracle of washing and sanctifying and justifying, May we live in your grace. May we revel in your grace. Lord, may we sing of it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H bible.org.